Good morning. Luke 15, 11, 32 is our scripture reading this morning, which by now I'm sure we're all familiar with. <clears throat> Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and then squandered his wealth and wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out <clears throat> to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starved to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you and I am no longer worthy to be called <clears throat> your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while, he was still, but while he was still a long way off, his father said to him, saw him, and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick! Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he, <clears throat> he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders yet you gave me yet you never gave me even a young goat so i could celebrate with my friends but when this son of yours who has squandered your property and prostitutes come home you will you kill the fattened calf for him my son the father said you are always with me and everything i have is yours but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Amen. Thank you, Sandy. Well, again, welcome, everybody. So good to have you here. Let's pray one more time, and then we'll look at the text for a bit. Jesus, thank you so much for your story for the story of you and your love and the way that you embody and show us who God is and also for the stories that you tell. That you tell stories of goodness and of love and of welcome and of celebration. As we look at that story today, would you help it shape the stories we tell about you, about ourselves, 
and about the world around us? Would our stories look like your stories? Would you press and pull on the places that don't look like your stories? Where we've projected onto you or onto ourselves lies and whispers and dark images that do not belong in this your good news tale. So God, lead us, guide us, and help us encounter you. In your name you pray. Amen. Amen. Well, for the last couple of weeks, we have been in a series exploring the parable of the prodigal sons. We've been in it for four weeks specifically. And the question that we have been asking as we look at this story, the story of the prodigal sons, is a question for ourselves to wrestle with. The question we've been asking ourselves is, do the stories we tell look like the stories Jesus tells? When we talk about God, when we talk about ourselves, when we talk about sin, when we talk about judgment, when we talk about all the myriad of difficult conversation pieces that are Christian theology, do they look like the stories that God tells? Do our gospel stories, our good news stories, look like the good news stories that Jesus tells? And maybe most importantly, do the stories we tell about God's self and others look like Jesus? The stories he tells and also the way he is and the way he lives in the world. Do our stories look like Jesus' stories? Are they as good as Jesus' stories are? Are they as vibrant as Jesus' stories are? Are they as welcoming as Jesus' stories are? And the difficult truth that many of us have to wrestle with is that we have inherited or come to believe gospel stories, good news stories that are just not that good. And that don't look like the stories Jesus told about himself or about the world or about his father. And throughout this series, what we're trying to do is press on our gospel stories, unravel some of the different narratives that we hold, that we inherited, that we tell ourselves, that we project onto God, unravel some of those stories to find the gospel that Jesus proclaimed. The good news of welcome and tables and celebrations, the fathers who don't care much about debt but care a lot about reunion. Stories of radical love that chases us into the fields, regardless of whether we're the pious older brother or the younger on the road. That kind of good story. So to help us unpack this story, what we've done is every week we've looked at different characters in the story. So we started with the younger brother who demands his inheritance and leaves to a foreign land to spend it however he chooses. And then the week after that, we actually took a break from the text and heard from people in the community who told their own gospel stories. And if you have not listened to that, it was so cool and really beautiful to hear people reflect on their own understanding of the gospel and to tell their own stories, their own good news Jesus stories. The week after that, we did Older Brother, looked at the story from the perspective of the religious leaders and the Pharisees who were represented by the older brother. And then last week, Heather talked about the father kind of the dominant character that keeps showing up in the story of the prodigal sons. We call it prodigal sons, but the character that remains in every moment and every act is actually the father who loves both sons well. Now today, what we're going to do is take a little bit of a different tactic. We're not going to look at a character because we've looked at them all. Instead, what I want to look at today is the party 
at the heart of this parable. So the father throws a celebration in order to honor and celebrate the return of the younger son. He goes into the field to invite the older brother to a party. So right at the heart of this narrative is a celebration, is a party. And here's the question that I want us to wrestle with today as we look at the party. Is it a good party? Yep. All right. Sermon over. (laughs) It's like the second time I've made that joke today. Love it. I love when a joke just keeps returning. Is the party good? And the reason I think that's an important question is I think that sometimes Christian faith can feel a bit like a bait and switch. Like the invitation to the party is really good. The father chases the son into the field gives and gives and gives of himself to welcome the sons back into the party. And we love that moment and we love that story. And we're even pretty good at representing that story in our own faith. But then the question becomes, well, what does the party actually look like? When you get inside the Father's party, is it as good as the invitation we received on the road? Because sometimes Christianity can feel like the invitation was really good and the party is very stuffy. <laughs> right? We loved meeting the father on the road, but as soon as we got into the house, the father really cares about proper manners. He cares about where we sit at the table, and he cares about how we eat our food, and he cares about the courses that are delivered. It seems like there's actually a lot of rules, a lot of obligations, a lot of assumptions, a lot of things that we have to do inside the party, and it feels very different than the invitation we received on the road. So is it a bait and switch? Is it a trick? Did we miss something? Did we get a beautiful invitation in the mail and then show up to a bad party? What is the party like? What are we invited into as Christians and as followers of Jesus? What is the party and what does it mean for us to be there? To look at that question, I want to ask three additional ones. We'll wrestle with these three additional questions throughout the text and for the rest of the time together. So the three additional questions are this. To know if the party is good or not, I think it's important to understand what is the party for? What does the party represent in the story? Why is God throwing a party? In our own lives, how does this party become representative? The next one that we'll look at is how do we party? How do we party with the Father? Is it manners and good rule keeping and making sure you know which side of the plate your fork goes on? Or is it hoedowns and throwdowns? I've never said that. Hoedowns and throwdowns? Who am I? I bought a truck and I changed into a totally different person. (laughs) Hoedowns and throwdowns. How do we party, though? How do we celebrate once we actually make our way into the celebration? What is that party like? And then the final question that we will wrestle with is when is the party? When does this event begin? Is it something that we are waiting for in the future? that we look towards, or is it something that's happening in our midst right here and right now? So the first question, what is the party? What does the party represent? What is it a symbol of? What is the party? In the parable, the party pretty simply 
represents restoration. The party represents restoration, but it represents restoration at multiple levels of the human experience. In the first, the party represents restoration of the sons to the father. This is maybe the clearest and easiest expression of restoration to see in the narrative. The father leaves his own home when he sees the younger on the road. He runs to the younger on the road. He clothes him. He puts a ring on his finger. These are symbols and signs of sonship being restored, that all the rights, all the authority, all the privileges of a son are being given again to this younger son. He's being restored in relationship. Whatever barriers there were are being removed. And the same is true in the older brother. The father leaves the party for the younger son, chases the older brother into the field, and invites him again back to the party to be restored to the family, to be restored to the brother, to be restored to himself. Whatever obstacles, whatever barriers had existed that he had built, the father tears down to restore relationship to himself. So the sons are restored to the father. That's the first level of restoration. We've looked at that a lot over the last couple of weeks. The second level of restoration is that the sons are restored to one another. The very final line of the parable is this thing Jesus says to the older brother. He says, This brother of yours was dead and is now alive. He was lost and is now found. The party represents restoration to our Father, to God, but it also represents the restoration we experience to one another, that we are invited together to be at this table, that we are invited to celebrate one another at the table as equals, without category or class or distinction, with all the barriers that we often build in between ourselves. The Father is tearing them down so that we can be again a family. So we've got the restoration of the sons to the father. We've got the restoration of the sons to each other. But there is a third kind of restoration that I think is the trickiest for us to get our minds around. And it is a restoration to ourselves. It is a restoration to ourselves. Yes, we must be restored to the Father, and yes, we must be restored to our brothers and our sisters, but we also must experience a restoration of ourselves to ourselves. And here's what I mean by that. When each brother leaves their father's home, they do so driven by a lie of fear and scarcity. We've talked about this over the last couple of weeks. The, fa- the brothers are afraid that there is limits to the father's estate, that there is limits to love, that there are limits to the resources available to them. In the younger brother, I think he is afraid that those resources, those loves, that goodness will dry up and one day be removed from him. So instead of allowing that to happen, he takes what's his and he bails from the party. I'm going to get what's mine and I'm going to leave now because I'm afraid that someday it will dry up and it will no longer be available to me. So I will leave in fear and scarcity. Older brothers, we don't tend to bail, we tend to work hard. So the response of the older brother is similarly driven by fear and scarcity, that there will not be enough for him, but instead of taking what's his and leaving, he puts his head to the plow and gets to work. I can manage, I can control, I can obey, I can do the right things in order to secure what is mine. In both 
brothers, there is a lie of fear and scarcity that is motivating and driving their actions. And those lies, like restoration, is multi-leveled. There's a lie about the Father, about how good the Father is, about the Father's character, about whether the Father has enough. There's a lie about each other brother, about what they might take from us, about what they might steal from us, about whether they're a threat or a family member. But there is also, at the end of the day, a lie about ourselves, we believe. A lie about what it means for us to survive. But what we must do to thrive in the world around us. About the weight and the security and the responsibilities that we have to place on our own shoulders in order to make sure we get what we need the most. When the younger and the older brother leave their father's house, they don't just believe lies about the father or lies about each other. They believe lies about their own selves, lies of survival. The lies that we tell ourselves about ourselves are different. I think that's why it's so powerful there is two different brothers in this story. Because the lies that we tell ourselves in our own real world also look different. The lies you tell may not be the same ones as the ones that I tell. Older brothers tell lies of survival that result in hard work and accomplishment. I think younger brothers tell lies that they will someday be denied the love they want, and so they leave. And the thing about these lies that is so tricky is that they are, yes, painful to believe, because they whisper to us untrue stories that trigger our worst fears— But what makes them so tricky and what makes restoration so tricky is that these lies are also the way in which we survive in the world outside the Father's house. As an older brother, I have gotten very good at finding a sense of identity in hard work and accomplishment. I've invested a lot of skill there, multiple degrees There, I've put a lot of my eggs in the basket of being worthy of love because I have worked hard enough. And yes, it is a terrible lie to whisper to myself that I need to work hard to be significant. But you know what? I'm actually pretty good at working hard to be significant. So the lie is tricky to upend. It's tricky to be restored back to some other truth. When I have put a lot of value and energy and resources in this lie, in committing to it. It hurts. And it leads to a difficult life outside the Father's house, but it is also how I have learned to survive and even thrive outside my Father's house. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, He creates this analogy of heaven and hell that's super fascinating. Hell, in C.S. Lewis's work, is a suburb, uh, which is real shady, but it's a suburb. But it's a suburb in which people are slowly moving away from one another, which I think is maybe the most beautiful part. Homes are just getting further and further away from one another as they live in the suburb. And people within the suburb, they are chained to what C.S. Lewis calls a tragedian which is like a fancy word for an actor. They're chained to a tragic actor. 
And so there's the real self standing on one side, and then chained to the real self is the false self, a false actor. And C.S. Lewis tells these really beautiful stories that are so challenging because as you're reading The Great Divorce, you'll see the true self and the false self change shape. One will get bigger, the other will get smaller based upon the stories we tell, the lies we believe, the way we live in the world around us. And there's this really painful moment in The Great Divorce where a woman finds her husband who's chained to one of these tragic actors and she's trying to have a conversation with him and she can never get to him. She keeps having a conversation with the tragic actor who keeps kind of getting in the way of the truth. He keeps standing in the middle of the conversation, and so everything that she says goes to the tragic actor. And as the tragic actor continues to speak and continues to tell a story that is false, rooted in lies, the tragic actor gets bigger and bigger, and the real self keeps getting smaller and smaller in the story. And so all that is left is this huge, tragic actor in a very small and painfully confined true self. I think this is an image of what happens outside the Father's house and what makes it so hard to experience restoration. The tragic actor is painful. It's a false story, a false lie, a false whisper that we communicate to ourselves, and yet it also protects us, it hides us. It's a shield we use to survive in a world around us. We hide behind the false self, but it is at the cost of our real selves. And this is what makes restoration to ourselves so difficult. The shield, the false self, the lies have to be put away so that we can hear the truth. But it is very difficult to put away the false self. And in fact, every time Scripture talks about the false self, it'll say it will feel like death to die to the false self because in many ways, it is a kind of death. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Galatians 2.20. It says, My old self, my false self, old self is one of Paul's favorite ways for talking about the lies that we believe. My old self has been crucified with Christ. Well, it's a beautiful statement, but it is also a painful statement. Something has been crucified. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So the difficult thing about restoration is that it requires a false self, a false shield to be placed away, to be crucified with Christ. And the thing that happens when the false self is put away is that we can hear the truth that we were loved beyond measure before we ever began this false lie that we built our life upon. That the deepest truth of the universe is that the God who created this universe would give himself for us again and again, that no matter how many things we build our life upon, no matter how many accomplishments, no matter how many scarce lies, no matter how many parties we throw, that all of it is a shield to protect us from the truth that we were loved before we began. 
And that truth is beautiful, it is mind-bending, and it is difficult to receive because to receive it means the false self has to be put away. It is a beautiful invitation to hear the Father's words, to enter into the party, to be restored, but it is also so risky. At least it feels risky. It feels risky to expose ourselves to the truth. The false self gives us tools for control. And so to expose ourselves to the truth that we are loved beyond measure looses our control. It lets go of the things that we have often built a life upon. And it'll feel like death. Because it is. But the promise of dying with Christ is that we live with Christ. The Episcopal priest, Robert Ferrar Capone, has this really beautiful quote talking about this parable where he says this, and I think this is a very good summation of what we're talking about. He says this, At this party, we're all dead here, and we're having a terrific time. We're all lost here, and we feel right at home. The invitation of the party is to be restored to the Father, to be restored to one another, and to be restored to the truth of who we really are, how God made us to be image bearers who are infinitely loved. And that is an invitation to die and to live, to get lost, to be found. To give up a false self so that we can be our whole and true self. That's what the party is. And that leads to the next question. How do we party? How do we party? If the party is a place of restoration, how do we enter into restoration? How do we live restoration? How do we participate in restoration? How do we party? And here's what I would say. The way we party is to take risks in love towards God's self and others. That's what faith is. It's a willingness to risk out of the truth of who God is and who God declares us to be. So we take risk towards God's self and others. And I like the language of risk because just because we are in the party does not mean that we feel immediately restored. I don't know if you've ever gone to a party, or maybe you've had family dinner, immediately following a fight with your family. Did you feel welcome? Even if you feel loved, even if it's a really amazing family, it can take a second for your body to just whew, feel at ease. It can take a moment to rest into a good place, to feel at home and to feel welcomed. So the party is a place of risk. It's a place where we don't always feel comfortable. It's a place where we don't always feel at ease. I, I think in this story, it's so fascinating. We don't know how long the younger son has been gone. 
We don't know what he looks like. We don't know if he recognizes the father. We don't know how long he has been gone. He gets home. The, party, the father throws a party, invites the neighbors. Can you imagine how awkward that would be? It's wild. They know, the neighbors know what the son did. Can you imagine the, the, like the family table talk conversation? Like, hey, what's up, Doug? <laughs> what have you been doing the last couple of years? Oh. Ooh. Like, it would just be weird, and it would take time for your body to feel comfortable, and it would be time for you to feel like you could risk towards the, old, the other. Or the older brother comes to the party, and the last time he saw his younger brother, the younger brother was giving the bird, taking his money and leaving so that the older brother could do the job alone. You would be so angry. And not only would you feel angry, it would feel like a risk to move back towards your younger brother. This person who hurt you, who stole from you, who cursed your father and who left you alone. And the truth is, the older brother is never promised the younger won't do it again. There's no promise that the party is safe. There's no promise that the party is safe. The promise is of a party. And I think a party is good. I think a party is of restoration. But the younger brother is there. The neighbors are there. The family is there. The older brother is there. And that's good and right, but there is no promise that it is safe, that it will be easy, that it will immediately feel comfortable. And so the way that we party is out of the deep truth that we are loved by a God who created the world and has enough for all of us, we are then able to take risks towards God, towards self, and towards others. We can be a people of faith. And the party enables our risk-taking behavior. I think that's what the party is for, a place of restoration so that we can take risks that we can take small moves towards God, small moves towards others, small moves towards the truth about ourselves that will challenge our false self, that will challenge the sin that we have habituated, that will challenge the false gods that we have worshipped, but give us a place of safety to do that in love, knowing the patient presence of the Father preserves. That is what faith is. It is a risk towards truth in the love of God. It's the small moves, sometimes large moves, that we make to act out of the truth that God declares. But it feels risky. So the party becomes a safe place for us to take those risks. It becomes a place of courage where we take those risks. Not a safe place. When I was a... Uh, I've told versions of the story before, um, but when I, was a, when I was a kid, my father died. And when I was 11, my mother, who's here, uh, married my father, my stepdad, who's also here. Um, and when, when they got married, if you are a step-parent or if you are a child with a step-parent, you, you'll know this dynamic, I think, immediately. They got married. They're wonderful. He's wonderful. I'm telling a story about you, just so you know. I did not ask permission to tell this story. 
And we'll deal with it afterwards. Uh, <laughs> if you are the child of a step-parent or a step-parent, you'll know this dynamic immediately, that it can take time for that relationship to, to, to transition into different stages. And for me, one of the best ways to symbolize this is it took me a long time to start calling my dad, who I called dad, dad. It took me a while to feel comfortable with that idea. When, when you were first, when, I'm talking to you, when you guys got, first got married, you'll remember this, you were there, uh, I called my stepdad Mark. What's his name? That's your name. I called him Mark because that felt the easiest to me. That felt the easiest to do. For most of my life, I had called one person dad. And so to, to, to transition into calling a new person dad who loved me, who was amazing, it, it took a bit. It felt risky. It felt unsafe. I felt foreign to do something like that, to call someone dad when I had had a dad and felt weird to transition into something else. And my dad was gracious and gentle. You never forced me to call you dad. You never even asked me to call you dad. You allowed me to feel safe. You threw a party. And at that party, I started to understand how loved I was. And that begins to curate in you some different affections some different imagination about what is possible. And as strange as it felt, there was a part of me that wanted to call my dad, dad. Like there was, there's this thing in you that's like, yeah, that's actually the right, for me, that was the right title that I wanted to move towards, but it still felt strange. And so before I called him dad, I started practicing, and this sounds silly when you talk about it like this, but I started practicing with other words. Now, I'm a theater kid, so it began with very theatrical and humorous expressions of dad. I would say in my worst British accent, father dearest. Or I would just whine really loud because whining, humor is always the way that I feel like I can handle anything hard. So I would just be like, dad. And that was like the first time I'd ever said dad. And immediately afterwards, I went to Mark. And it sounds silly to say this, but those small humorous gestures were risks simple steps that I could take in faith, confirming the truth that I was as loved as this person said I was. And slowly, those small gestures turned into padre. This was the the gateway drug to dad. (laughs) I started to call my dad padre. And I don't know why padre. I don't speak Spanish. I don't know why that is the easiest one. I think it's probably because my parents like to practice their Spanish on any innocent waiter that approaches them. (laughs) I love you. And so I went with padre. And padre felt so easy. I don't know what it was. It felt easy. It felt safe. It felt like I could call my dad padre. It contained some of the affection of dad. And that became, I think, for a while, the normal moniker. It wasn't Mark anymore. It wasn't Father Dearest. It was Padre. And I don't remember when or even how it happened, but something shifted kind of organically, and all of a sudden, Padre switched to Dad. I don't really remember why. But I do think it was because I felt like I had the space to continue risking. Because I'd gone to a party that was thrown by someone who loved me. It gave me the courage to take small risks of faith, confirming that I was as loved as I was told. 
And it started in silly, humorous, small steps towards affection and connection, and then began to grow into more affectionate and familiar titles until, for me, what grew out of it was the word dad. Oh, this is who he is. Because this is who I am. Loved beyond measure. Given the courage and the power to move and grow and risk. I think just as my dad created a safe space or courageous place for me to take risks in love, I think the party becomes a place for us to move towards our father, to move towards our brothers, to move towards ourselves in risks that are sometimes silly and simple. It's just being here on a Sunday morning and singing a song that confirms and speaks a truth over us that we are loved and that our God is good. And as we take these small risks, change begins to move in our body. Our muscles begin to strengthen. The fear, I think, begins to release. The survival skills that we've learned from a lifetime of fear and scarcity begin to unwind. And we begin to feel like we can rest at the table because the truth makes its way into us. Because we are restored to ourself and our truest identity. And out of that reassurance, insecurity, we can take risks. So, how do we party? Take some risks. We get on the dance floor, we move towards insecurity and assurance. That leads to the final question. When is the party? When is the party that the Father is throwing? Well, it is uh, past, present, and future reality. The party is something that God has already begun. And this is really important for us to understand. I think often we think of faith as a set of beliefs we hold and the thing we wait for. It's like I believe right things about Jesus, and I wait for Jesus to finish the whole thing, and I live in the tension in the middle. But we are Christians, we are a people of a party that has already begun. The party has already been happening. Jesus tells us all the time, the kingdom is in your midst now. Get on the dance floor now. You can take risks in us now because the party has already begun The party is a past event as much as it is a future event. We have already been invited. We are in the process of being restored. We can take risks towards love now because we have already received our welcome. Christian philosopher James Smith says it really beautifully, writing, Christian faith is ongoing participation in the Christ event which continues to rumble through human history. Christianity is less a what and more a how. A question of how to live 
given what has happened in Christ. I love that switch of emphasis. It's less a what, it's less a set of beliefs, though those are important and true, and it is so much more a how. What do we do now that we've been invited to this party? And what do we do now that we're being told we are loved in this way? And what do we do now that the lies of scarcity are beginning to unravel in the midst of us? If this party is really happening, how now do we live? How now do we celebrate? The party is a thing that is happening. And it is a thing that we are called and invited to participate in here and now. This party has begun, but it should live on in us. It's the reason that we gather at the table every single week, so that we can taste and see in this moment that this thing is happening, that we are constituted by this party, that we are defined by the party, that we are a people of God's welcome. The party is present in our midst here and now, and yet at the same time, we recognize that the party is what theologians call already, not yet which means it is in our midst, it is beginning, it is at work, but it is not yet finished, and we know that. Some of us don't feel like our brothers have come to the table yet. The Father is out looking for him still, but the party has begun. It's just already not yet. It's begun, it's happening, but it is not yet finished. And we, maybe like the younger brother, wait in the house for the older to return. We're waiting for this party to hit its full stride. I like to think about it as the night before a wedding. Party is beginning. I don't know how your weddings were, if you got married. Mine, there was a party before the party. We were celebrating in anticipation of what was to come. I think in the same way Christian life the church, the community that is called by Jesus is meant to live in a way that anticipates the finished party of Jesus through our celebration, our welcome, our table, our gathering here and now. Through the way we do life together, the way that we love, the way that we welcome, and the way that we take risks in love towards God's self and others, we witness, that's a good Jesus word, to the thing that God is doing in the midst of us and the thing that God is doing in the world and the thing that God is going to complete. In our celebration, we anticipate the party to come. Monsieur, that is what it means to be the church. People who point towards the party through the one that we throw here and now. So let's do that. Let's gather at this table in a way that anticipates the full welcome. Not the one that we wait for, the one that we are experiencing here and now, and the one that we long to be fulfilled. Let's gather in celebration and anticipation. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your story. That is rich and good, deep and wide. 
that it offers us hope when we feel lost and abandoned, that it offers us a direction forward when we feel connected. That the party itself is good. A place of growing intimacy, of deepening affection, of widening love, and of truth being declared about us and about you and about others. So God, today as we gather at this table, as we sing, would we declare that truth, know our restoration, and anticipate and point towards your work here and now. Father, we pray these things in your name. Amen.